Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, he passed out and rolled down a sand dune, but he's up and ready to pod. It's John McMahon. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. I do like that one. You said I wasn't going to like that one. I'm, I'm here for it. Uh, I wasn't sure. <laughs> I mean, there are the like sand dunes of South Central Colorado. Um, there's like a whole national park about them, so I'm generally in favor of sand dunes. Are the sand dunes? I prefer it with a no, 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 no. We're talking like landlocked sand dunes. I've also done like the the sand dunes like out on Cape Cod, one of like the best outdoor summer afternoons I've had. So I'll take it. I'll yeah. I'll take it. I'm like, get me away from a sand dune, get me into the water. So <laughs> I mean, to be fair, one of the nice things about Cape Cod is you walk in through the sand dunes and then you get to the ocean and go into the freezing ass cold ocean, even though oh my it's God. dry. I, <laughs> I haven't been to Cape Cod. We used to go on vacation with like some family there. I haven't been to Cape Cod probably since I was like, I don't know, like eight or nine and I can still remember how cold the water was and also how steep the sand dunes were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was, I've only been there once. Um, I had a nice little summer getaway during grad school, but Very nice. it was good times and it prepared me clearly to talk about Moon Knight. A great segue. So we are here <laughs> to talk about Moon Knight episode four, The Tomb. It is directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, who are also the pair who directed Some of the Suit for episode two. And it's written by Alex Minahan, who's the executive story editor. And then Peter Cameron and Sabir Pirzada also have writing credits on this episode. And John, will you give us the illustrious IMDb summary? Surely, Mark and Steven must find a balance as supernatural threats ahead look to stop them. I'm honestly not sure what that summary refers to. (laughs) Me too. It's only technically makes sense if we view Harrow as supernatural, right? Like on 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 the most basic sense, that's the only way that it technically is true. Maybe. It doesn't actually give us any of the things that happen in the episode, which I guess is the one thing that all of the Marvel IMDb summaries together don't do. As we have learned. As we have learned. We've learned so much. I have learned so much over now (laughs) 10 episodes of MCU podcasting. Oh my God, are you, do you have a calendar that you're crossing off? Like (laughs) only only two more to go. (laughs) Uh, It's a mental calendar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. So let's, let's dive into the general discussion. And I think like maybe a place for us to start is for you to offer your reaction to what I would say is the twist, the last 15 minutes of this episode. Yeah, I found the transition to Stephen being in the sanitarium and the mental institution, like the way they get to there, and then those last 15 minutes to be probably the most engaging to me and what I am interested in seeing in a TV show of any of Moon Knight so far. I mean, there have been like small pockets of exceptions earlier. Like I'm thinking about the Khonshu's like eclipse and the mm-hmm. aftermath of the eclipse in the last episode we talked about with Regan when he kind of turns back the sky, which we also talked about last week as well. There have been like those kinds of moments that I've been interested in previously, but in terms of something that is a long, a sustaining kind of portion of the show. These 15 minutes are, I think, particularly generative. 
Can you tell me a little bit about like what makes them exciting or generative for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very predictable, I think, based on my general tastes and reactions to the show and conversations we've had on and off mic, and that you at one point in the first or second episode talked about Moon Knight as a show where Marvel could do like their version of weird. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been most effectively captured, at least in the kind of weird that I want yeah. in these last 15 minutes. And that there's a disorientation to the viewer. That's like a provocation to thought and engagement yeah. that is functioning aesthetically and functioning with regards to how the plot is going and is functioning with regards to how a narrative is constructed by both the characters in the show and by people watching the show. Mm-hmm. And those things are all working together in a in an effective way. And it's the fact that is it is the strangeness of just taking us to the sanitarium, not explaining yeah. what's happening, giving us the several moments, admittedly not all of them that I caught while I was watching that either I had to be informed about by you or had to see read on the internet of like the symbols from everything that had happened in the three plus episodes to this point that are scattered throughout and even recognize some of the characters that were the same mm-hmm. carried over. But then once we kind of, you know, get to like, obviously there's the Indiana Jones knockoff and I caught the, the you know, the, that's an obvious one. Yeah. Um, and there is Ethan Hawke as, I guess, no longer Harrow, but I'm just going to keep calling him Dr. Harrow here, I suppose. Yeah. There is the things in his office, the visual cues, the story to that point. Then there's obviously the fact that the tomb, uh, Mark opens up the tomb, Stephen comes out of the tomb. There's yeah. another tomb and the hippo goddess comes out of that tomb. Like all of these things are the moments of connection, but it leaves it to us to do the interpretive work and the narrative work. And it just looks cool in a way that some things have looked cool in what we've watched so far, but it's a more kind of sustained version of that, at least in terms of what I would define that as. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. So when Marvel gave critics this, like, um, previews of the show, they gave them through episode four, which is actually like, yeah. And it's actually like quite uncommon to do that. And so there was like a lot of speculation, like for the MCU, you mean for the MCU and for like a six episode show, Mm -hmm. right? Like you would not usually give critics like more than half of. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm thinking about, you know, shows oftentimes not quite as famous shows where they're like, Oh, the critics got everything except for the last two or something like that, but of an eight or 10 or 12 episode season. Yeah. So I think like, this is the most that any MCU show has given. And I think like in the past, some of the MCU shows had, I think like maybe there was, maybe they got three of like Falcon and the winter soldier. Um, which has more episodes. So four out of six was like everybody, mm-hmm. all of the the commentators were like, okay, like something, we know that they got four episodes. We don't know what is happening, but it seems like something big is going to happen in episode yeah. four. And apparently episode four, like is what Oscar Isaac got episode one and episode four. And that's what convinced him to do the show. Okay, So like he had like that, 
Um, so he has a script for four. Okay. Right. So like, he's got that like big reveal and knows that that's coming and like knows what it, whatever is happening in the middle knows that that's what it's building towards Mm -hmm. your appreciation of it. Like in terms of the aesthetics, in terms of how things are being intertwined is also, I think paralleled in the way that the show was offered to critics in previews, like where I think we're seeing, that like Marvel also knew that the end of this episode was something different, something special. And like, I would say something weird. And like, I'm a much bigger fan of this show than you are as we've established. Mm -hmm. But like, I also appreciate the weirdness and I like the word that you use disorientation about it. And I was saying to you before we started recording that like, I've watched this episode now, like something like three or four times. And there are still pieces of it that I'm like, not quite sure I'm fitting together. And there's something, something about that, that I really like that, like, maybe it's not all symmetrical and maybe it doesn't, it's not all smooth. Right. And there's, this is too tidy of an explanation on my part, I think, but it's like the disorientation that we as a viewer can experience in those last 15 minutes that like, I think we both are engaged by mm-hmm. is not totally dissimilar from the disorientation that the character of Mark, the character of Steven feel as they are locked inside this institution. Right. So there's also yeah. a certain kind of uh, situating the viewer or a certain kind of viewer in a structural way or narrative way or formal way to kind of match the main characters uh, or a couple of the main characters at least. Yeah. And I think if we think about, right. So oftentimes in shows like this, experiencing the show through the lens of, of the main character of the protagonist. And so like Steven doesn't know what's going on. So we're Mm -hmm. like, we are in the other episodes sort of experiencing the show through Steven, not really knowing what's going on. Right. And little by little we learn. And so it is interesting that in this episode, it's like the not knowing what's going on is blown way beyond just Steven, right? Like it, yes. th- that scales up in, in a, in a, in a pretty important and I would say like impactful way. Yes. I would agree with you there. Uh, it offers a different standpoint on how the show functions as a TV show, like as a aesthetic work. And I think that that is fairly exciting. And I think that, you know, and this is, um, perhaps where I kind of let the hater shine through that one of the things I liked about the last 15, 20 minutes are that in an episode where like, I think there's a lot that is predictable and tropey and I understand, and you have explained to me like why it is predictable and tropey and why that works for an audience that is not me, that there's just more surprise or revelation or like wanting to do something different and kind of push something in those last 15 or 20 minutes that of course would appeal to me. I think for you, tropey and weird are that like, that's an overlap that you're like, you're willing to take tropey with the weird, right? Like that that's the, that that's your preferred preferred way of like ingesting tropey. Yes. And I think like, I don't know. I, I like, this is a, a a weird and a big swing for a Marvel show, like to do something like this. That's that's not just tropey, but like I would use the word trippy, right? Like mm-hmm. and like 
and disorienting. Like there is sometimes Marvel shows want to be puzzle boxes, right? Like there is a, a version Loki is a version of a puzzle box show. where like trying to figure out all the pieces. Yeah. The way that I think about these 15 minutes is like, it explodes the puzzle box a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it, um, it's like, Oh, you wanted your puzzle box. So you think that you're figuring pieces out. Oh, Steven and, and, um, Mark like are starting, we see their relationship. We see how they fit together. And then none of it makes sense. Good luck. I think that that's a good way to put it. I and mean, it gets to a question that we talked about before the recording began. It gets to a question that the show is implicitly asking by doing this kind of explosion of the puzzle box or this kind of like slight journey to trippiness or whatever about what is meant to be understood as reality in the sense of like, yeah, I think, you know, the logic of the show is such that we're probably not supposed to think that the entirety of what has happened up to this point, like quote unquote, purely takes place in Mark's head. Mark is like the kind of, you know, the primary um, altar in the DID system Mm -hmm. or whatever, but it leaves open for now, at least the possibility of that with the added weirdness of drawing on visually um, all these kind of cues and symbols from the preceding episode. And then of course, like ending with just the hippopotamus guy that shows up and says, hi, <laughs> who like we sort of briefly met. We didn't meet the the goddess herself, but we like hear about her, right? Because Mark is, Mark needs to pack, or not Mark, sorry, Steven needs to pack the hippos, like, and he's like, this isn't even the right, like, the hippo, like, hippo, it's, like, not part of the Indian, like, it's not even the right thing, like, oh, yeah, I did back not. in the museum. I did not catch that. <laughs> okay, that's what I'm here for. Thank you. <laughs> but, like, to your, to your earlier point about it leaves open the question of what is real, like, I mean... I certainly, and I would say even this time, and I've, this is not the first time I've watched this episode, just like getting to that point and being like, is it all in Mark's head? Like, is this all, or is it all in Steven's head? Like, is it all in someone's head? Whose head is it in? Who are we right now? Like, and then it took me a minute to like realize it was Mark. And then like, then he let Steven out of the, out of the tomb. I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff happening here. There is, there is, and it's, I, this can be nothing other than a backhanded compliment, I guess, but like, it's something <laughs> that... In true John fashion. You could, <laughs> true, uh, it's, I'm not going to argue with you there, is this is a thing that like could over would happen in, you know, this is a, a, you, you and Regan dragged me appropriately last week for this idea that like, if this thing happened and it's like in a tour driven like piece of creative work, like, would I be into it? And this is the thing that like more so whatever you made fun of me for last week, like actually could show up <laughs> in was a different punk. sort of mind. Yeah. Something like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this is an example of, it's, you know, like you said, something unexpected for the MCU to do this kind of, it's more than a, it's a twist and it's more than a twist, right? Like mm-hmm. any, you know, show that has any kind of like tropiness to it all. And I don't mean that in a negative way is going to have like its twists, but this is yeah. so much more in such a more creative version of that yeah. than like, you know, I don't know what we would want to say, like some of the main twists in Loki would be, but it's you oh, know. like Sylvie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, even though it had its own kind of things to, to speak on its behalf, I think. But yeah, this is a different kind of, or different level of it. 
Yeah, I I agree with that. And also, I just like like that you have found something to like about this show. <laughs> and like in a real way, right? Like I, I hear I am hearing a real like appreciation for this, even if you're not like, oh, this is my end to the MCU. You're like, oh, like, OK, they can do things that that surprise me. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Yeah, and I was, you know, led to know, like, one of, you know, you mentioned this to me, and another one of my friends mentioned it to me, that there's, like, a Moon Knight episode that's one of, like, the weirdest, trippiest episodes of TV that they've ever seen, and they were shocked that it came in the MCU. So I was, like, conditioned to know that this was coming at some point. Yeah. But nonetheless, you use the word surprise. It's still... Caught me by surprise what they did with this scene and or this you know extended scene sequence over the last fifteen twenty minutes of the episode. I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take yeah. it. And I think like so. I think one of the things that gets raised in these fifteen minutes, like, and gets raised in a like, I would say like a more um, pointed way than it has been raised before in this show is the question of, like, what is reality? Dr. Harrow, all of the people in the asylum or are, like, people that we have seen, you know, there's the, I'm saying this to you before we recorded, but, like, the living statue is the guy who's calling bingo, there are cupcakes, like, all of these, these, like, signs and symbols from earlier episodes are, like, infused into the scene in different ways. And so the question that I keep asking is, like, is this actually the reality that that Mark lives in or Steven lives in, mm-hmm. or is like the reality that he lives in the like, you know, working at the museum, being an assassin, like, et cetera, et cetera. Like which of those is reality? I think is like a, I don't know. It's a, it is a troubling question. And like goes back to that point of disorient. Like that's the thing that's disorienting for me. Yes, I agree with you there. And I and to perhaps make an overly fine or overly obnoxious point about it, like the what is reality question comes kind of imminently, imminently, like with an A from yeah. the <laughs> scene itself, from the show itself, as opposed to like the question of reality in Loki is outsourced to the TVA, to Kang, right? To some external authority that is determining what is and is not reality. Yeah. And the fact that this makes us like imminent to and within the question of what is reality without offering that kind of external structural, like structuring force. Yeah. I think that that is what enables some of that kind of surprise to take place or this question about, about what is real to function differently. Well, yeah. And I think like, just to build on that a little bit, I think it is what it's like, what enables the discomfort or like the confusion to, to take shape. But it's also, it's exactly what you said. The fact that there is no explanation offered, right. That we're just thrown into this world and we're, I think meant to ask the question of, what is reality? It throws the other three and a half episodes into relief for me. Because there are also elements of, like, things being, like, magical or sorcery or potentially not real in earlier, like, the conchu of it all. Mm-hmm. The, like, summoning the suit of it all. The, the, the invisible jackal, right? Like, 
these um the heck of priests and their the and like the zombified like existence right like those are also things that could very easily like not be part of reality and so it, i don't know i think like smashing these together just troubles all of it yeah and the lack of exposition does to use a movie and tv criticism cliche it asks or it trusts the viewer in a way that the rest of the series is not necessarily doing so that like it's willing to throw us in there disorient us and be like here like figure it out right engage with what we're doing aesthetically and narratively in a different way then so, like then like the trust the viewer to find the Easter eggs or connect yeah. it to a broader arc or something else. Like that's I think qualitatively different yeah. is an ask to the viewer than what they are asking or compelling the viewer to do in this sequence at the end. I have a question, but I don't want to give anything away. So I'm going to save the question for next episode. Are we going to remember the question? Because I think for, I realized that when we did episode two, we were like, oh, we'll come back to this question. And then I forgot what the question was. And I don't know if we ever came back to it. So you should write it down somewhere or just ask it. Like I'm fine being spoiled. So I guess like the question is like, okay, right now we have no explanation. We're thrown into this world. If we get an explanation, does that undercut all of this? Potentially, like if yeah. that's, I think, a, are you explaining it well or not yeah. question? And I think they're both, both are possible. You know, certainly would I be intrigued by the version of this that just like has us languish in the what the fuck is happening disorientation? Yeah. Yes, 100% absolutely. Yeah. And whatever kind of climax to the story takes place leaves a shit ton unresolved and leads us, leaves us kind of disoriented. Like I like a climax of a show that or movie that doesn't answer everything that doesn't, yeah. but does leave some of that strangeness or disorientation. So the fact that there will be some explanation on top of all of this that we will get yeah. doesn't automatically mean that like it undercuts what's happening. So far. yeah. I was just, I was watching Rise of Skywalker last night and I was thinking about the, like, the chewy, like, death, not death. And, like, there's oh a version God. of this that could be that, right? Like, where it, it all gets pulled back really quickly. Yeah. I don't think, I don't read it as that, but I, like, we are going to get some more explanation. Sure. It's a matter of how well do you carry out the resolution or partial resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so time will tell. One last thing on kind of the structure and narrative of this last 15, 20 yeah. minutes of the show is that it does offer, in one of the other kind of reality bending or reality questioning ways, a different vantage on a line that at least was important to me from mm -hmm. Stephen earlier in the episode where he and Layla have arrived at Harrow's camp. They're like looking for reading it for supplies as they are about to enter the, the tomb or the pyramid. Of course, Mark, excuse me, Stephen sees a mirror. Mark is in the mirror and Stephen says, well, don't worry. I must have some of your muscle memory. And so the questions that are raised here about like Stephen and Mark in the DID system, how, yeah. What is happening psychically is connected to what is happening in an embodied way yeah. is another sort of question that gets opened in a different way here at the end of the episode. Yeah. And I think like, to me that that is an extension of the question of like, what is real? Like what is reality? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's an extension of, of the question of like, 
you know, who's in control, what's in control, like what, what does it mean when like one of the, one of the identities is in control of the body? Does the other, does the other entity in the system like have access to that? I think like those are all connected questions. Right. And Layla even asks that question directly of Steven at one point. Yeah. So while they're still in the tomb. Can he hear me? Right. Can he hear me? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. No, I think that like, to me, all of this is connected. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give anything away, but I think we will, we should come back to, we should definitely come back to this question in the like last two episodes. Wonderful. A little bookmark for us. All right. So also here in the general discussion, I think it's worth mentioning how Harrow fits into it all, and okay. particularly a series of potential, quote unquote, or question mark, contradictions that are existing, like Harrow's belief set in this show. Or I'm just going to call him Dr. Harrow or something yeah. when, we're in the, when we're in the asylum. That we get several lines, not just from Dr. Harrow, but also a line from actual Harrow in the tomb. I think it's in his confrontation with Layla. Yeah. That I think raise a lot of questions about how seriously versus instrumentally or how nefariously he has adopted the kind of ideology or like ethical worldview of Amit, right? Mm-hmm. Cause like his up to this point, he's been like, well, Amit just knows. And if you're evil, she's just like going to shut that shit down right from the beginning. So there is no possibility of like redemption or kind of right. saving oneself. If one is bad, like one is just pruned uh, from the timeline from the beginning. Look, Look at, at you. Uh, um, from the beginning by Ahmed and like her cult. But then in this episode, we get from Harrow this line of, I can't save anyone who can't save themselves, which to me seems just like a pure impossibility with the Ahmed worldview. And that like, you're not giving someone the chance to save themselves if they are like prejudged by Amit as evil or whatever. So the way that the kind of general Amit worldview interacts with him in that particular line yeah. is I think an open question. And I'm, I'm not saying this to be like, Oh, well it's like an inconsistent characterization or something. I think it's a asking us to further question what exactly Harrow is up to. Or, like, what Harrow's place in the, like, in the Amit judgment zone, like, Mm -hmm. and sort of, like, in the Amit judgment timeline, almost. Mark is the avatar of Khonshu. Harrow's not the avatar of Amit because Amit is not, like, released in the world, right? That's the whole thing in this episode. They're looking for her. It's not as though Harrow is speaking for Amit in the same way that Mark can speak can speak for Kanchu, and yet Harrow does have some kind of access to Amit's powers and yes. judgment. And so I think yes. like I think the generous read of it, which I'm I'm impressed that you are pushing us towards <laughs> uh, like a generous way to read it is that it's not a character inconsistency, but it is like a the inconsistency is itself like important. Right. It's a question. It's a exegesis question. Yeah. Right. Rather than like a theology question or something. Well, and I would also like in earlier episodes, I don't think we get it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nice. 
you know, theorists, we love methods. <laughs> Look, I'm, I've so far avoided a Plato mimesis reference, so we're going <laughs> to see if I can maintain that other than that one slip. I'll take right it. There. But I think, like, we have seen Harrow in earlier episodes, like, not just use Amit's power, right? Like, mm-hmm. he shoots people. Like, yeah. he's not... And so, like, that inconsistency does seem to be, like, he's all for, like, Amit's justice as long as it is, it is like, getting him to the end that he needs, which is, like, also releasing Amit, but also seems like gaining some kind of power, too. Mm-hmm. I would like, agree with I would agree with that. And, and like, and Dr. Harrow is in the position of power in the asylum at the end. Exactly. He gives another line reading that I think we could also ask, how does this connect or disconnect from the like Amit beliefs? And that is, he says something to the effect of we live in a psychic world, not a material one to Mark, which could just be a treatment or manipulation or both of Mark, or it could have some kind of broader ramifications for the ethical and ontological worldviews that he is offering in relation to Ahmed and his complicated, as you point out, position in yeah. relation to Ahmed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that, I, I think that that's right. And I think like the psychic versus material is like particularly interesting in a moment where we are not sure, which is what reality is, is the, is the institution psychic is it is it only existing in mark's mind yeah or like is the institution material like it's the place that mark exists where like the rest of the stories have been fabricated Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like both of those are plausible Right. And by having shaded Harrow in the way that the show has up to this point, that further continues the, we're going to withhold the key that unlocks the nature of precisely what is happening. We get this line from Harrow, but I don't think we are intended or meant to take that and come to a single conclusion about how reality is functioning on the basis of that line. So it's more of a generative opening line than one that's resolving. Yeah, no, I think I I I read it similarly, so I think that makes sense to me. Great. Listen, the show has given us a lot to think about. Who Look, would have thought? I mean, we're going to have to talk about the other thirty minutes of the episode at Listen, some point. We'll get there. <laughs> we have uh, stayed in the last fifteen minutes of the episode of the Moon Knight episode. We're much longer than fifteen minutes, of course. Um, <laughs> Obviously, always. Have we ever told the audience that our original intention was that the episodes were not going to be longer than the thing we were watching or talking was about? Was that our original intention? I honestly don't yeah, remember. That, that was the original intention. That was then, silly of us. <laughs> that was ridiculous. <laughs> So here we are. See uh, the month we spent reducing a shared piece of writing down to like submit it to a journal. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Let's dig into segments. Let's get into Marvel splaining. So I have only one Marvel splaining question this week, and it has to do with the cold open that we get before the Marvel Studios stamp visualization at the beginning of the episode. We see one of the members of the Ennead taking the entombed encased Khonshu and mm-hmm. putting Khonshu like in a little like cubby hole in a stone wall yeah. with where we see a ton of other gods who have yeah. suffered the same fate. Did we know that there were a bunch of other gods and goddesses 
that were similarly encased like Kanshu before this moment? This is a two-part question. That's the Mm. first part of the question. So I think, like, we, as the audience, did not necessarily know that, but, like, the Egyptians had hundreds of yeah. gods. Mm-hmm. I would say it's like not super surprising that there are others that have been subject to the same fate. I think it also confirms the something about the the like power hungriness or the regular the like desire to regulate that the Indian sort of like performs on Kanchu. Okay, that's good because that kind of answers my second question of like if if we did not necessarily know within the universe of the show itself about all these other gods that were encased and tombed, put in stone, whatever, then are we supposed to take this scene and be like, oh, the Aeneid is up to a bunch of shit more so than we even realized up to this point, even with all the hints from the previous episode? The way that I read it, and this like this is a bit of a throwback to our last episode, the like line that I was trying to push there. But like my expertise is not Egyptian gods and goddesses, but it's Greek gods and goddesses. And so the way that I read it is like it's a similar like power struggle, gods doing mischief, lots of like random entanglements that like sometimes uh result in gods being bound to stone statues and like that i think you asked a version of this question last week with regard to amit right like do we think that amit had the same fate as as Kanchu? and it's like it's not exactly the same fate but like a god being bound to a stone statue with Kanchu and amit we know that it's happened at least twice and here we see it's happened a lot more times so that this is not such a, it's not such an out of the ordinary thing to have happened. Got it. Okay, cool. Questions answered. There you go. You know, I'm here with your, just Egyptology girl. That's my superpower. <laughs> Great. Like the fact that we have Egyptology girl overlapped with the MCU fan that you are really, really brings home why we're doing this podcast <laughs> about midnight. <laughs> Um, you have a surprise John Dossier entry. So. I do. I don't often get to just like purely make predictions about yeah. what's going to happen. So my entry building on our America, our, our, one of our favorite American segments is that Harrow, either in current form or previous form or avatar for Kanshu form was Mark's partner at the dig site and that it was Harrow who killed Layla's dad and shot Mark, some form of Harrow. That's my John Dossier entry. I like that entry. Okay. I'm not going to tell you yes or no, but Clearly. I I like it. Clearly. I like where you're, I like when the episode makes you think. <laughs> Whether this counts as thinking, we'll have to ask Hannah Arendt. Okay. Um, should we go to the Easter egg hunt? Look at that. Look wow. at that. Wow. 40 minutes in. We got an, we got an Arendt reference. <laughs> We're not even doing Arendt in the cave. It's <laughs> All right. For it. I have a few Easter egg possibilities here. Was okay. there, is, does Alexander the Great figure into the MCU at some other point? Is there like a history nerd? Alexander the Great Stan in the MCU coterie? No, but honestly, that would be amazing. I would be here for that. Is there a character that would be the one who was like a history nerd Alexander the Great Stan? And is it Groot, who is one of the only, you know, (laughs) which is my question apparently now for every character. (laughs) Have I seen Guardians of the Galaxy? I have not, friends. 
I don't think it would be Groot. My bet is that if it if it did exist, it would be it would be Darcy, who's like this MCU creation side character who is in WandaVision and also in the Thor movie. She's sort of like um Natalie Portman's character's like sidekick. They're both scientists. So I feel like Darcy would also be a history nerd. Okay, I totally knew. She's played by Kat Dennings, and she's one of the best characters. Okay, great. Next Easter egg hunt is something about just the existence of the asylum or the particular aesthetics of the asylum. Has there been another character in the MCU also sent to an asylum with some questionable things happening with regards to what reality is? Oh... Hmm. Has there been another character sent to an asylum? So not in the MCU, but oftentimes in comic books, what there are like some characters that are just like too powerful. So like commonly here, like Omega level mutants. So for example, like professor, professor X in X-Men, right? He has a son Legion and like Legion is just like, too powerful so oftentimes he's like debilitated in some way so an asylum legion like in comic books is like found in various asylums like because they're trying to convince him like what reality is real so the asylum is is often used as a setting for for like a sort of like a character reset because if the character was allowed to like use their powers then like no other character would be necessary does that make sense that does make sense I have one more Easter egg hunt. Okay. Have any of the characters been spelunking or cave exploring in the past of the MCU? Uh, <laughs> I mean, not that I can remember Captain America, the first Avenger. So the first Captain America movie, there are like, there are a lot of cliffs and like, there's a whole scene with like a train on like a snowy mountain ledge. So there's definitely like weird rock climbing happening. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Spelunking, not so much, but like you, that's like in the ether. All right, great. Should we go to gloss? Yeah, let's go to gloss. All right, let me turn it over to you, Danielle, because while there's a lot that I didn't love about this episode, as I'm sure we'll get into here in this segment, <laughs> friends, I do think it's worth talking a lot more about Layla since we didn't really get the chance to talk about her and the way we structure the general discussion. So how do you see her character functioning here? How do you see her character functioning in terms of the commentary she's offering on the story itself or on Mm -hmm. kind of broader concurrence kind of swirling around the story? Yeah. So I obviously, as we said last time, this is a Layla Stan podcast. Um, We love Layla here. And one of the things that I was thinking about in this episode, and this sort of like we hear, we get this at the beginning of the episode where Layla is angry with Mark about a deal that has been, that affects her, but that she hasn't been part of. And this, this comes up a couple of times where like things are being hidden from her or Mark's not being fully truthful. And she's also like asking Steven about these things and Harrow is sort of trying to use this against her or use this, use this to, to like split her and Mark. And so I was thinking that Layla's frustration with being kept in the dark is like a real feminist moment. Like this idea that like men are making decisions around her that are that like 
directly impact her life and well-being and that she's not willing to simply withstand that but in, in fact is actively pushing against it like there's some real like fuck the patriarchy energy there which i am here for and I mean, as we talked about before the show she does give this line to harrow that seems to be in part expressing this very specific frustration or piece of anger and that is that you know, she's asks Hera, like, why are all these men condescending to me? Right. About kind of particularly on questions of what she knows and doesn't know. Right. So I think that that yeah. kind of figures in and like, there's, there's a kind of cliche version of like, quote unquote, strong woman in a film who you just like, let her do like blowing stuff up stuff. And while Layla gets some of that, I actually think that kind of first sequence she's in with the truck in the desert, right after Kanchu's kind of been like, yeah, taken away. Whatever, is like pretty good action uh, work by her and then by the show as a whole, considering. And we get, though, this more kind of complex notion of like questioning how gender functions in these kinds of stories or more broadly than these stories in the way that you're identifying. Yeah, I'm also, and like, this is just a real practical point. She's like pretty savvy with how she uses those flares. Like, you know, and I, she looks badass when she likes them. And I, and like, it also gives us a really interesting visual effect to have like the red light, like Mm -hmm. the red light illuminating things. And like, yeah, to your point, like that first fight scene is impressive. And like, part of what's impressive about it is that she's scrappy and resourceful, right? She sees what's there. She sees where she can hide. She tries to keep herself out of sight and she's just like, I gotta, I gotta like stay alive. I'm going to figure out how to do this. And like, I don't know. She does. (laughs) And there's a mirroring in the action shots of that scene and kind of her first encounter with the Hekka priest who is like killing Harrow's men, right? Where in the opening scene, she's kind of slinking around the Jeep or around the truck to try to stay out of sight. And then in the later scene, she is like slinking around the altar or whatever it is we want to call it um, in within the tomb. So like her, the way she moves and comports her body so as to like engage in an action scene is I think there's some obviously paralleling of those scenes that's happening. Well, and also just to build on that really briefly, like we, because we see her get out of the first scene, it is believable that she could get out of this later scene, right? Mm -hmm. Like we sort of, it builds to like, we can, we can accept that she might escape this like supernatural like situation. Yeah. Can I ask you another Layla point? Yeah. Structurally what the show is doing when Steven is in the tomb, like finds Alexander the great finds the Ahmed Ushabti, et cetera. Like, it's not a continuous sequence. There's a cutting back and forth between Layla and Harrow having their mm-hmm. conversation and then Steven being in the tomb. And I'm wondering, like, obviously there's the fact that Layla and Harrow are talking about Mark and talking about what Mark and Mark's unnamed partner did to Layla's father. And mm-hmm. Harrow saying, like, your dad was right. The gods walked among us. So there's, like, that kind of specific plot thing that's happening. But in cross-cutting those scenes back and forth, like, what are you effect does that generate do you think oh interesting i mean i think i wonder if if part of it is the sort of like psychic material split a Mm, little bit mm -hmm. 
where Harrow is constructing his version of the psychic reality, the one that is useful for him that that like generates a split that generates a split between Mark and Layla, a split that we are sort of watching happen in the editing. And Stephen is like finding the thing, the like material object that they actually need and went in there for and are like therefore in the first place. I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, I think that that could be part of it. I th- the other idea that I had about it is that it's in some ways a scrambling of what Layla announced as her intention at the beginning of episode three, right? Where she's kind of going back to do the work of like, you know, repatriating, recovering, stealing the already mm-hmm. stolen artifacts and stuff. Where here she is frustrated in a like literal sense of like being prevented or blocked from doing that precise work. And instead it falls to Steven to do it. Yeah. which As a result of Harrow and like Harrow's relationship with the like zombies or whatever. Yeah. Which I think like would be consistent, right? Like it would be consistent. It's consistent with your point from a couple minutes ago. Yeah. Also just that like it's Steven, Steven is the one doing the work, like finishing Layla's like job. Right. And not Mark because they're like the split that we, that we are experiencing in editing that Harrow is trying to like widen um, that like works at least for a little bit when Layla comes back and confronts uh, Steven that then, then um, the body goes back to Mark. Right. Like, it would be consistent that it's Steven and not Mark, like finishing the job that Layla set out to do. Mm, good point. Good point. So you mentioned Danielle um, at the beginning that we get the same directors from episode two that are directing this episode. Yeah. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And you've also pointed out previously that one of the things that makes Moon Knight a little bit different than other MCU shows is that they are having a couple different directors as opposed to one person directing yeah. the episodes. So I'm wondering if from like a director perspective, what consistencies and potentially also what divergences you see in the style um, or composition of episode two in this episode? I think the the big consistency is the like the horror elements. And like this is Marvel horror, so it's not like the same it's not like a you know it's not the black phone but or the purge but it's uh like in episode two we got the like we got the jackal for the first time right or like we we get the jackal footage we get the we get conchu we get the lighting in the hallway Mm -hmm. and i think like there are consistencies between that and the heck priest and the like literal zombies right that are chasing mark and layla um that that feels like a big consistency yeah and then that makes sense to me and i think visually there's something to be said for the way that episode two envisions harrow's like amit cult kind of um clubhouse uh for lack of a term utopia (laughs) utopia right and the way that some of the interiors of Amit's tomb and the surrounding structures are created and lit at times. 
So. Yeah, I I think that that's right. And I think there's like both of the episodes share an eeriness that is coming through in some of the lighting choices. And I would put the red flares like mm-hmm. in <laughs> as a different way to evoke an eeriness or a sort of like forebodingness that that the sequence in the hallway with the lights going on and off did like. You could tell that something was coming, but it was unclear what it was. There's a yeah. there's a suspense building that's happening in those aesthetic choices. John, you, I believe, wanted to register just, you know, a couple minor complaints about yeah. this episode. <laughs> I mean, I think we can agree that I've genuinely been extremely generous. But I, Honestly, this, this is the most generous you've been on any episode of MCU <laughs> that we've done. So, yes. Great. So I have to ruin that then. Okay. So I have several areas of complaint, and I'm interested in... Uh, I can just say them or if you'd like to respond, you know, I think you're a little bit over my just, this is not for me complaint. <laughs> so this is in no particular order. For as far as I can tell, literally no reason having to do with the show itself. Um, Ahmet is like in the tomb of Alexander the Great, who Stephen just like happens to discover in this episode. And I'm like, really, do we need to make this an Alexander the Great like situation like couldn't it just be like whatever it's just like the it's just it's just annoying to me and then they like double down on it by having like steven call him like mr great several times in the thing and i'm like this is just it's several bridges too far for me so i love this part of the show Uh, this is like full Egyptology girl. Like I love the like, oh, let's play around with the like Alexander the Great's tomb because Egyptian tomb is like not found or like missing or like unknown the whereabouts. Like I think that that's funny. Yeah, it's like not, I guess like it doesn't really have a purpose in the show, but it like warms my former Egyptology girl heart. Yeah, it doesn't do anything for it. Only further hardens my cold and black heart. Um, yeah, well, I don't know if anything in the show is going to unharden that heart, my dear. <laughs> true, true. My next entry in complaint corner uh, has to do with like there are some parts of the show, particularly again this the first half hour or whatever, that are just like so utterly predictable. Even for somebody who has never seen Indiana Jones, has never seen The Mummy, is not like generally within the aesthetic universe of these shows. I predicted out loud to my cat, like minutes before Layla stabs the flare through the like zombie's eyes, that Layla was going to do exactly that. Like even before we get the first shot of like her being hunted as she's making her way like across the rock for crumbling rock formation. I'm like, oh, I bet that on the other side of the rocks there's like a zombie or a hecka priest or whatever. There's just like the tropiness makes elements of what makes elements of this like so super predictable. Yeah, I mean like I think that that's a valid critique, but I also feel like the general audience of an MCU show is like into the tropey elements. Yeah, that's probably true. So like a valid critique. I also knew that that was what was going to happen, but I was still excited when it did. Then there, there lies the difference between our relationship to this show that I, I rolled again. The cat was, <laughs> the, the cat was also not interested, but he's not generally interested in anything of is being on the TV except for birds or chipmunks. So <laughs> 
All right. My last entry here in complaint corner on this episode, because I just have to let the hater out in some form, is like we get this kiss between Steven and Layla that I think is just like so cliched and pointless. I don't think there's been enough character development more so on Layla's point of Layla's part than Steven's part to kind of have the like build up to this moment or to have it make sense. I don't particularly think that them kissing does any further character work. And they went with the most corny possible music swell in the background <laughs> for eight seconds. I knew that that was going to be your point. <laughs> when they kiss. And for like all those reasons, like as I have in my notes, at least they're both hot. So I guess there's that. But, like, other than that, I have only negative things to say about that moment of them kissing. I'm going to agree to disagree here, but, like, I, I, I mean, like, I think your, your opinion is valid. I <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I know it's valid. It's wrong, but it's okay, valid. fair enough, fair Like, enough. I mean, I, listen, I, the at least they're both hot is like basically all I need for it to okay, be. Mark and Layla are married, right? Yeah. So like the fact that there isn't enough character development with regard to Layla on this point, it's like, well, she already like is attracted to this man. Right. So like, I think that there needs to be less of it on her part. Like, is there enough? Do we understand enough of why Steven is attracted to her? No. Could we do with more of that? Of course. But I'm like, oh, these hot people are kissing. Okay. It makes them honestly like the and this gets us into the um, this gets us into one of my jokes that maybe aren't jokes. (laughs) Uh, to jump ahead to that glass segment. But like one of my favorite things that happens in this episode is when Mark punches Steven. (laughs) I just think it's so funny. Like it's like that. And then when Mark's, when um, Steven says to Mark, I wrote it down. If I need a recipe for a protein shake, I'll call you. Okay, that's okay. I I was gonna say that there were no good jokes. That is the one good joke. I'll I'll give the show that the protein shake one. Yeah, the protein like, shake line. Okay, good one. yeah. Well, I was like, you know what? You know what, Stephen? Good on you. And you know what? That is, I think, a joke, and was actually a f- one good joke. So uh, look at that. My entry in jokes that aren't jokes for this week is that we can figuratively say there is a chasm between Layla and Harrow. And if the show is like, just in case you don't realize that, we're going to literally put a giant chasm between them. Uh, and I thought that was actually really hilarious. I I also really like that. We have even like a bonus of one good camera shot that I'd like to offer. Okay, please. So when Harrow shoots, I believe it's Mark at this point, the way they have Mark falling into the water in the tomb of Alexander the Great for some reason. And then he like keeps falling and kind of, it goes from water to just kind of like him being suspended. It kind of across like a purely black field. I thought was actually a very cool shot on its own terms. And then also as a transition into the last 15 minutes of the episode. Yeah. And like, you know, of course, like I'm going to apply some of my favorite 
like films to the shop. Like I'm getting a dash of vertigo stuff. I'm getting a dash of like under the skin, which would make sense with some of the like MCU horror elements as well. And like, we determined that the directors are like indie horror people. I'm sure that they like have under the skin, which is not quite indie horror, but whatever in their like film vocabulary. So I liked the, the way that they depict, uh, shoot and then depict, um, Mark getting killed by Harrow. Yeah, there's something about the, like, into the water, then into the empty space yep. that is, like, felt very effective to me. I'm into it. I'm into that. More, more positivity for me. Like, look, look at this. Look at you. Look at you. Are we Are we ready for minor character of the week? Yeah, we're ready. G- give it to us. All right. So, clearly, there's, there's only one obvious choice, and that is the minor character of the week has to be the hippopotamus goddess that we see for literally all of six seconds at the end of the episode. <laughs> there are no other options. Like visually the design is cool. Yeah. It gives like a corny reading of high, but I'm actually okay with that. Yeah. It like fits in with all of the things that we said that we appreciated or liked about these closing 15 minutes. It raises more questions than it answers. And it's like generally, I think, uh, you know, I'm here for the hippopotamus goddess. I'm with you. I like, this is one of my favorite characters in the series. Spoiler. It's not the last time we see her. Yeah, but that's, I have that's no doubts that she'll be in the, next, in the next episode. Yeah. I do. These are things that I don't think are necessarily connected However, in my brain, and I think in a lot of people's brains, they were connected. So Oscar Isaac, who is a phenomenal singer, we've talked about this a little bit, right? Like he was, he's in Inside Lewin Davis. He also sings in uh, a couple of other movies. Like he's someone who knows how to sing, knows how to play guitar. He was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And like in, in the, I believe this is the promos for Moon Knight, but this is like way before this episode comes out and he sings this song that he sings to his kids. Right. So John, I want to play this song for you. And I think like in this section where we're honoring the, uh, Tavaret, the hippopotamus goddess, I want to hear your reaction to Oscar Isaac's hippopotamus song all right so we're gonna actually not insert the audio for the audience because that's more editing work than it's worth it we'll include the link in the show notes we also don't want to get sued by anybody oh i don't care um (laughs) i don't think that our extremely listened to podcast you know extremely listened to to. all right daniel so we're gonna hit play and we're, we're doing a like live reaction situation you said I want to hear your live reactions to this song. All right, I'm, I'm hitting play right now. Audience, please do the same. Yeah, it's the hippo song. About the hippopotamus. Okay. The most dangerous land animal in the world. Hippo- Is the hippo the most dangerous animal? Hippopotamus. Maybe. Hippopotamus. I mean, I guess I like like the cadence of the song. Jimmy Fallon doing very Jimmy Fallon things. Yeah. If you get okay, I'm all right with that rhyme. All right. I don't need Jimmy Fallon on camera. You can keep it on Oscar Isaac. He's really into it. I guess that's nice. Ow. <laughs> okay. Wow, we really did that. 
breaking new ground, Daima. Breaking new ground. I, I mean, it's not always that we get like you know multi-platform content that's connected. <laughs> My to- favorite thing. <laughs> That's connected to our show. My favorite thing is multi-platform content. But we will definitely Films link Hippopotamus song. products, yeah. Um, oh, my no, God. No, Hippopotamus song, I'm generally pro, I think, the Hippopotamus yeah. song. I'm pro Oscar Isaac singing the Hippopotamus song. I'm I'm even pro rhyming Hippopotamus in Dangerous. Um, yeah. I'm here for it. Listen, uh, Hippopotamus is a rough song, is a rough word to rhyme. Yes. It's good work. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the understand hand rhyme. I don't know if I love yeah. that one as much, but hippopotamus, dangerous. I'm, I, I can do it. But if you were a five-year-old. I'd be into it. Right. And that, this is for his five-year-old. Correct. So once that. again, I am no longer, I'm now not snuck in the <laughs> I'm not the audience. I'm not five. <laughs> now I'm going to have a hippopotamus song in my head for the Probably rest of the time. Probably me. Um, I, I do <gasps> like the rhythm of the hippopotamus song. I, I can't tell. It's like definitely riffing on a many pre-existing songs and one in particular that I can't quite place, but that's all right. Should we go to politics in the MCU? Yeah, let's dig into politics in the MCU. Um, the thing that I was thinking about in this episode in terms of politics, and in part because my best friend from grad school, shout out to Isabel, uh, works on um, mental health policy and like welfare state politics. So I was thinking a lot about the mental institution, the sanitarium that is like being represented on screen and just the politics of all of that and the way in which mental health policy is oftentimes a, a decent predictor of the direction or the, the sort of expansiveness of a country's welfare state. And like general set of state supports, but there's a lot of there's a lot of insidious and nefarious power happening in this particular mental institution. Mm-hmm. So maybe we want to dig into uh, into that a little bit. Yeah, well, there's even before we kind of get to what you're alluding to, there's the fact that we don't, as you eloquently discussed earlier, we don't quite know exactly what is real and who is yeah. deciding and making what reality is, and I think that's very fitting with questioning the structure of power and knowledge within the institution of an asylum, of a sanitarium, et cetera, et cetera. So then obviously this is just like a bonus cave where we bring in Foucault and like the way he thinks about, I mean, just generally like thinks about mental institutions in his early work, the way that there are connections between mental institutions and prisons and kind of the early to mid Foucault. Like there are just any number of places we could go. We're not going to go in depth, but just to point out that like, we do see the representation of the mental institution should raise these kinds of questions. And like, I don't know, I, and I don't know, and I'm also not qualified to like make a wild guess about, like, I don't under, I don't know enough about say DID to think yeah. about the politics of how the show is representing a person with DID yeah. in relation to a mental institution or to mental health policy. So I'm just going to like say that there's probably a lot more to be said by someone who is not me, like about that particular dynamic and yeah. my kind of baseline is skepticism, but like that's, yeah. which is fair, I think. In a similar boat to you. The one thing I will say is like, they did have like someone who is a specialist regarding DID consult on the show, which doesn't mean that everything in the show does the representation justice, but it does at least mean that people were thinking about like doing it in a tasteful way. 
And so, yeah, I mean, like I, the, the question of like, I, I think that it comes back to the question of like, what is real and like the, and what reality is produced by a mental institution. Exactly. Exactly. That's a Foucault question. That's not like an yeah. original thought by me. Listen, we love a Foucault question. <laughs> we do. So if that was like a little bonus pre-cave, let's actually go down to the cave. Uh, let's go to the cave. Danielle, who are you taking with us this week? I'm taking John L. Austin, J.L. Austin, who is a uh, a philosopher, uh, you know, a British philosopher, someone who is, I would say, the thing that I know him best for is the set of speeches and, or talks that then are collected into a volume entitled How to Do Things with Words, giving us a version of, of speech act theory, this idea that, that speech is not only descriptive, it doesn't simply describe reality, but it in fact produces reality. And I think like going one step further, it's performative, right? It like, like speech can perform action. So like, I would say the most... Probably the most famous example of this is the the I do that transforms a bride into a wife. This is one that political theorists, gender theorists are are often thinking about. So it is not you're not simply describing a reality when you say I do if you are a bride at a wedding, but in fact you are transforming the conditions of your reality, one from which you are not married into you being married by the act of saying those words, right? So like this idea that speech is performative, I think like that was the thing I kept thinking about, especially in relation to, first of all, in relation to Harrow and and like the scene between Harrow and Layla, where Harrow is like, saying all these things to Layla that are altering her reality, right? That are designed to induce a kind of split between Layla and Mark that are designed to like weaken that bond so that Harrow can like get in there. Um, But then also just the fact that the exchange between Layla and Steven around like where, where they might find Amit and like thinking about the eye of Horus and the map and that like the, the voice of Amit and Avatar is the voice of Amit would be located in the mouth, right? That that's sort of how they locate it. There's something active about thinking through the relationship between like representation being one's avatar and speech being performative and not simply descriptive. That's a lot, but that's where my brain was. That's very impressive, Austin, um, off the top of your head. So A, kudos for that. And B, I mean, I think there's even ways we could use the kind of general like speech act thing that you're identifying to think about something as like basic and munitus sum in the suit, right? Like those are words yeah. that actually quite literally when Kanshu is active and like in present in the world, like summons the suit, right. In a certain yeah. way. Um, Absolutely. I mean, there's a certain kind of bodily action. And then we get into like the locution stuff that I don't understand or know about from Austin. That's the stuff where it gets complicated. Yeah. Um, that's for a future cave. Definitely. Well, yeah. the fact that like summon the suit when Steven says it brings a different suit than when Mark mm-hmm. says it, I think like goes to your point that like summon the suit is 
is an action and it is also like determinative of a particular reality, right? Like the sum in the suit is intended to bring about the moon Knight suit, but brings about the Mr. Knight suit. Like that is a, that's a shift that's, that's unexpected in that moment. Yeah. And I think the bringing the particular reality into focus or into being is important. Like the way yeah. that the, the little Austin that I know, I don't know from Austin himself, but through like a new, alluded to this earlier, Judith Butler to right. Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, two gender and queer theorists who are reworking various ideas from Austin in their own work. Yeah. And so like the fact that you point us to this conversation between Harrow and, um, and Layla probably makes sense even in that particular context, that there's certain yeah. ways in which patriarchal ways of knowing, performing and saying and speaking and being, um, come into being through particular kind of speech acts as well. So I think that that yeah. tie is probably worth commenting on. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think the the sort of, like, to go back to the point that we were discussing earlier about, like, Layla being this, like, more feminist character show in the universe and that, like, so many of her, like, actions and and, like, speech acts are pushing back against, like, these men trying to in instill a reality upon her right like i think also is like not fully in the direction that butler and cedric want to take us but like walking more in that direction than than simply along the the austin line all right can i read a fun fact from wikipedia about austin and somebody dragging austin obviously uh, so this, is, this is in the quotes in the Wikipedia section of Austin. During a lecture at Columbia attended by American philosopher Sidney Morgan's Besser, Austin made the claim that although a double negative in English implies a positive meaning, there's no language in which a double positive implies a negative. And then there's this perhaps apocryphal story, quote, to which Morgan Besser responded in a dismissive tone, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which others have quoted as, yeah, right. So look at that. Listen. Lots of some spicy things going on at Columbia University Linguistics Lectures in the 60s or 50s. Listen, I, I much more appreciate the Austin we get through, like, Butler, Sedgwick, and Honig um, than Austin himself, but was you know, made to, made to deal with a ton of Austin in grad school when I was like working on my dissertation. Pass. It's like Austin and, and psychoanalysis are these like things that ended up not making their way into the dis. (laughs) Yeah. Here we are. I think we have come to the end of this episode. Yeah. Austin stays in here's speaking of performative speech acts, Danielle, and the act of saying you make this a reality. What are we doing with Austin in regards to the cave? Austin stays in the cave, but like he can tend to the fire. Like he's not the worst of the worst. We don't need to chain him up, but he's definitely like down in the darkness. Great. Is there a case to make for him holding the puppets? I'm trying to Would that be like a little too on the nose? (laughs) That's why that's why that's what I would like to happen. Yeah. Okay. I'll take it. Cool. I'll take that. All right. As, also one level down in punishment. So I'm like, yeah. obviously for that. Thus, thus said, let it be done. Uh, yeah. 
Okay. Thus spake, thus spoke Zarathustra. <laughs> <laughs> ah, <laughs> Nietzsche prefiguring Austin by how many years? Always, always. How did you think of words? <laughs> okay, well, thanks as always to producer Amy. Thank you. Next up in the feed on Thursday, uh, American Season 2, Episode 10, Yusef will drop. And then next Tuesday, you'll get um, Moon Knight Episode 5, Asylum, with a special guest yeah. um, that we're very excited about. And we will uh, introduce when he joins us. Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, the TV podcast, created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.